Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. We got a special edition today. We have Bimo Gogumu on the phone to talk to us from Austin, Texas on Trade Block which is not your typical startup. It's not your typical sneaker startup, but we'll get into that in a moment. But first, BMO, let's get to know you a little bit better. And I got to tell you, out of all the folks we've had on here, I think your story is going to be truly unique for this first uh, round of questions, which is you from your childhood self. Like, who were you back then? We know you big time right now, which we will cover and, and people will adequately know why. But back in the day, like, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What was that like? Did, how did it shape you? And would that young kid BMO be friends with or want to be friended by the BMO we see today? Mm, that's a fantastic question. So just starting with the, you know, the story, if you will. So I was born in, in Cameroon in West Africa. My dad and kind of his whole, you know, lineage of family going back generations all from Cameroon and so my dad actually came to the states when he was in college met my mom over here in the U.S. they got married had a couple kids my older siblings then moved back to Cameroon um, so I was born over there we moved back to the states when I was really young like I was two and a half when we moved and then spent a couple years in Chicago um, where my grandparents on my mom's side lived before ultimately landing in Houston um, southeast Houston when I was seven years old, going into third grade. Um, so from third grade on, you know, I was kind of H-Town, hold it down for, for the rest of my, you know, childhood. And I was an athlete nerd. I came from a household, you know, not only with an immigrant father and anybody who has, you know, who's a first generation immigrant will know, know pretty much across the board. One of the things that's consistent is really, really high expectations when it comes to academic achievement, right? Our parents sacrificed so, so much in their lives to give us these opportunities. You know, I think when you're a kid, it can feel a little bit intense or overly pressurized, but, you know, you just got to realize, hey, they sacrificed, you know, their entire lives in many cases and lived for decades with little to nothing to create these opportunities for you. You know, I had that from my dad's side and then my mom was also a teacher. Um, so I think in general, there was just a very high expectation that, Hey, first principle is you got to do really well in school. And basically, you know, nothing else matters if, if that's not happening. So, you know, the other thing was we came from a household like without like a ton of wealth. When it came to things like cable TV, there's no cable in the house. You know, we had our five or six network stations. Um, when it came to video games, like we were never getting any consoles as a gift. I remember me and my brother bought a PS1 two years after the ps2 came out and after we had saved up for like four or five months to buy this joint you know used and that was the first time that we had you know any sort of gaming console we did we did play computer games like i was a big age of empires guy you know starcraft those sort of classics we didn't have a lot of the traditional uh, forms of entertainment that a lot of other kids had and so i think for me you know i ended up just becoming a major major bookworm I realized that there are all of these fascinating worlds that I could explore, you know, in the pages of a book. Um, and so I was really into sci-fi, really into fantasy. You know, I read, I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy when I was in fourth grade. Like, just don't ask me why it was amazing. 
amazing. Um, I remember reading Lord of the Flies when I was going into fifth grade and I was like, this is really, really intense. Um, maybe I shouldn't be reading this, but you know, I think a lot of who I am today, my curiosity, kind of the the interests I have across so many different facets of, you know, life comes directly from the time I spent growing up just reading a ton. So again, I say athlete nerd because I was also really into sports, didn't play any sports until seventh grade because again, my parents were like, academics comes first and also we're not paying for you to go play a game that doesn't make any sense so the moment I could join the team at school which was seventh grade you know I started playing basketball played football ran track and then in high school I sort of focused you know pretty much predominantly on basketball so yeah growing up it was athletic life and then it was you know kind of nerd life that I ended up going to Dartmouth to play basketball for, for two years in the Ivy League um, before eventually sort of saying, my heart isn't in this anymore. You know, let me go back to Houston. Let me figure out what I want to get out of the rest of my college career, you know, before I move on. So ultimately landed at the University of Texas here in Austin um, and finished my undergrad out here. Gotcha. Appreciate that. There's so many things. I want to go back earlier, early. You brought us all the way from college, from from your, you know, baby rocker all the way to, to your diploma. And we, we will get there. But for right now, uh, a number of things. One, you moved around at least two times before you were in kindergarten. It's basically what I'm hearing or around that age. Were you aware of that as a kid? Was that impacting you is the first question. And I'll repeat these if you need to. Secondly, you know, were you always tall? Did people say that you were going to be a basketball player when you were, you know, three or four or five or whatever years old? And then thirdly, my parents uh, are not immigrant parents. I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast are, and I've heard what you said before about like the attention and focus on high excellence achievement. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit more for those who have that experience or who don't. Was your mom as a teacher specifically like reading to you like walking you through these different things or she pointed out or was it just like hey here's the expectation and you figure it out really unpack that for us how you develop that go-getter mentality fantastic question so first question you know when we moved from cameroon i was i was too young to remember anything cameroon related so you know my first memories are in chicago and then when we moved from chicago to texas again i was six seven years old going into third grade you know i remember being kind of sad that I was going to be, you know, leaving some friends behind. But I think I've always been a pretty social person. You know, making friends has never been really super difficult for me. Honestly, I also think that the age at which we moved was kind of an ideal age, right? I was old enough to understand what was going on and be able to adjust, but also young enough where, you know, I hadn't built any really strong bonds or attachments to, you know, the old home in Chicago. Um, For comparison, my brother was going into sixth grade. And we were also going from Montessori school in Chicago because my mom taught there. So we were able to attend the Montessori for free to public school in Texas. So I think the biggest thing is just like, that's a culture shock. Uh, But in third grade, it's kind of like, ah, you know, it's just all school. In sixth grade, you go from, you know, small, basically private school to big junior high, just getting exposed to all sorts of things that are that are net new. So. You know, I was aware of it. Um, I don't think the moves had a major impact on me. And again, I think I you know, kind of found my group pretty quickly um, when we got down to Texas. The second question, I wasn't always super tall. Seventh and eighth grade when I started playing basketball in earnest, you know, I was probably in the, let's call it the upper third of players, but it's not like, oh, you're the tallest guy. You definitely are going to be a basketball player, et cetera. I hit my major growth spurt 
really like there was one before freshman year so i finished eighth grade i was 511 i think i was 62 when i went into my freshman year and then i was 6566 going into my sophomore year so i was decent at basketball before that but then you know i grew and then i also kind of you know took me maybe a couple months to like grow into my new body but once i figured out how to use all my limbs and stuff that's probably like summer of sophomore year was when i realized okay, you know, I can actually be elite at this. And then that's when the idea of going and playing Division One, you know, became a, a real thing to me. So, you know, I got a little bit of it here and there, but it's definitely not like from the time I was a kid, everybody was like, oh, you're certainly going to be this or that, or, you know, you should be trying to go play professionally or whatever the case may be. Um, I also think of my family, like, even if I was seven feet tall in fifth grade, that wouldn't have been the narrative from the fam, even if it was, you know, from the outside looking in. And then on the last question, as far as like the, you know, high performance expectations and, and culture, you know, I think my parents did a really good job of leaning in, you know, to all of that stuff. They were really diligent about like reading to us and stuff when we were little. I remember, you know, my mom would always get me these little kind of like brain teaser math puzzle type of things some people listening might be familiar with um, mensa it's like a math club sort of thing but i remember man it must have been in fourth grade my mom got me this little book that was like 150 mensa puzzles and it was just different kind of logic and math based problems that were a combination of practical math and you know kind of geometry skills but also some creative outside of the box thinking and i just Man, I love that book. And I'll say another kind of salient memory that I have. I ask a lot of questions, even today. Like, that's just part of who I am. If I don't understand something, I have no problem asking what may seem like a stupid question. Like, well, I don't know the answer. So if you think I'm stupid for not knowing, that's fine. But I'd rather be stupid for a second and then I have the answer then pretend I know the answer and be stupid for longer. But so when I was a kid, man, I just used to pepper my older siblings, my parents with questions all the time. And one day my mom was basically like, look, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know where you can find the answer. And she took me up to the public library. She showed me how to search for stuff in the little computer and kind of find reference books or whatever. So she's like, if you have a question, type in the topic here, go pull some books off the shelf and see if you can find the answers. And I think that was another thing that really fed my love for reading as a kid, because I must have been, again, maybe third grade. And it was, it was very empowering to suddenly be like, oh, I can go find answers and truth for myself independently. Like that becomes a sort of a point of pride when you're little, and you're used to like, well, all of my knowledge of the world comes from authority figures. Now I got excited about learning things and going back to my parents and being like, guess what? Did you know seahorses can change their gender? Did you know? Like just random stuff that I happen to be interested in. So that's cool. When you said that, it reminded me of a TV in our house growing up, actually in my, in my room growing up, but it sat on the floor. And when I tell my niece that TVs used to sit on their floor, her mind is like blown. But uh, we also didn't have cable on that television. It just had like mostly PBS was the one that came to the clearest. And I remember that episode with Arthur. Everybody probably from born in the 90s knows, you know, having fun at their heart when you got the library card. So it sounds like your mother had you on lock there, which is good. And I think it's a lesson for everybody that cumulative like curiosity really pays dividends. And for you, eventually that curiosity led you into the technology space. So what was the first time you really touched technology? Was it the PS2, you know, way back in the day? And I see that you are a self-taught AI 
person in Denier, I'll let you describe that, but talk about sort of those earliest moments of just being exposed to technology outside of, you know, the library, and then bring us up to the moment where you really start to, to figure out that AI is the future. Great question. So I'd say first interactions with technology were really the computer we had at the crib when I was a kid and like just playing computer games. My grandparents bought us uh, a computer when I was, I mean, it must have been first or second grade, a year or so before we left for Houston. And, you know, I basically used it for one purpose, which was to play a bunch of games. But I definitely also found it fascinating. And I did as a kid, you know, do some light reading on like, what are these things? How do they work, et cetera. But at the time, I think I was just more so interested in, well, what can I do with this tool as opposed to kind of how does it work and, you know, what's going on under the hood. As I got older, you know, I think another piece of it was just I had a love and a passion for science fiction. And I just loved reading about, you know, potential future worlds where, you know, the authors were presenting all of these crazy ideas of technologies that might exist or that were inspired by things that did exist and kind of, you know, trying to extrapolate 100 years, 500 years in the future, what sorts of things might we have? And that was always really fascinating to me. And so I think that's why I always gravitated towards bleeding edge technology like AI, like quantum computing, or any of these sorts of things. Because it's wait a minute, wait. I don't mean to cut you off, but that is is truly unique. You're saying you were always thinking, what is 500 years or a thousand years in the future? Where did that come from? Why do you think you were asking yourself those questions? Yeah, you know that's a good question that I've never that I've never really chewed on. I mean, again, I think a part of it was those sorts of stories are often the most fascinating to me. I think good sci-fi and fantasy is rooted in good world building. And so the stories that were the most fascinating to me were the ones where it's like, yeah, sure, there's some plot line that's happening and hopefully that's good. But actually just the backdrop, the setting, the world that this is taking place in is so unique and different than the world we have today. And just sitting and imagining like, okay, well, for example, if we did have, you know, chips embedded in our brains that allowed us to basically, you know, run Google searches and indexes and all of that in our brains. How would that change everything around us, right? You know, I think oftentimes we think of technologies in silos where we don't realize, you know, new technologies change everything. Like, let's look at the internet. How does commerce happen? How does communication happen? You know, how do we perceive connection and love and, you know, bonds? It is so, so, so different today than it was 20 years ago. And I'm sure nobody, when the first version of the you know intranet was created, and it was like scientists who just wanted to be able to pass research papers back and forth, basically, I'm sure none of them were thinking about, you know, hey, we're eventually going to have a perfect algorithms that could just keep tapping, tapping, tapping on our reward hormones and all of those things. So I just, I think I always found that fascinating. And then I think the other part of it was I've always loved history. Like I've always loved trying to understand what was the past like. And how has that colored the present, right? So, hey, why does this thing exist? It's not because some random person was just like, I want to make this exist. Usually it's because at some point in the past, there were circumstances that, you know, created incentives for someone to say, let me go explore this. And so I think my, my fascination with the future is also kind of ironically a product of spending so much time looking at, studying, thinking about the past and comparing that to how we got to the present, you know, it's almost running a mirror of that same thought process of like, well, in 500 years, when they look back on us, what are they going to think? Real quick story, when I was in fourth grade, you know, I was in one of these like 
gifted and talented kind of classes at my elementary school. And man, shout out to that program. I think that that was also a big part of my development. Again, very kind of curiosity driven. It's not we're going to go do harder math problems. It's we're going to think outside the box and you know be creative. And we read this short story. I'm pretty sure this story is literally called They're Made of Meat. So if anybody wants to look this story up, it's maybe a 15, 20 minute read. But the whole premise of the story is it's told from the perspective of two aliens that have just discovered Earth and are like discussing like what the heck is a human. And their minds are so blown by the idea of like, you know, so the one guy's like, so what are they made up of? And it's like, yeah, it's just they're like big sacks of meat with some bones in there. And the other guy's like, but they're intelligent. And he's like, yeah, I know. It's like, you're telling me these are just intelligent sacks of meat. Yeah. Anyways. So we read that short story. And then the exercise afterwards was imagine you are an alien or you are a human a thousand years from now who's, you know, excavating, you know, artifacts from today's current society. What sorts of conclusions would you draw about our society and culture? And one of the ones that always stuck with me was like, you know, we started talking about like, well, what are the biggest buildings and the things that are likely to last the longest and stick around? Like what would be our version of the Pantheon or whatever the case may be, the pyramids. And we were all like, oh, it'd be sports stadiums, actually. It'd be all these giant arenas we've created to play a game. And so we actually, one of the predictions we made was like, in the future, they'll think that sports were, were our religions and that. Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or these guys who have statues in or around these arenas, it's like, oh, those must have been their gods, right? Which has always just stuck with me of like, huh. And actually, if you think about it, that might not be far from the actual reality of society today. So I think just lots of little things like that when I was a kid just gave me a healthy fascination and just a, a natural inclination to think about what are things going to be like five, 10, 50, 100 years from now. That is truly intriguing and a perfect segue because the industry that you're in, and I don't like using that word industry, but we'll use it for now. I'll call it, broadly speaking, the sneaker resale market, although I'm loath to describe it that way because historically that's how it's been viewed and you have a different take on that. So talk about what is Trade Block, the company, the origin, the genesis of that idea, where did it come from? And it's a very deliberate choice to deviate from what people might expect from a similar app and situation. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. I got a quotable here. You decided to focus on collectors instead of sellers. What does that mean? Yeah, so at the highest level, TradeBlock is a barter-based social marketplace for collectors. To put a little bit more practical, simple language around that, TradeBlock is a place where collectors can come, create a profile, list the items they have, the items they want, and basically connect with other people and trade. So think of it almost like fantasy sports, except it's your real sneakers, your real collectible items, and you are proposing deals with other collectors who exist in real life. And rather than it just be a virtual swap that changes our rosters, you know, we are actually physically facilitating those trades. So you've got a pair of shoes I want, you know, I find you on the app, I send you an offer. You don't like my initial offer, you counter it, ask for a different pair of shoes. I say, cool, you can have those, but only if you add $50 on top, you agree. Then, you know, basically Trade Block charges us both the service fee, gives us shipping labels so we can ship our shoes to our Trade Block authentication center. We make sure they're real. We make sure the condition is as described in the app. And if everything checks out, we forward them onto their new owners. 
that's basically the product and the service. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you, because that, that really struck me when I was going through this. I was just like, authentication, quality control, y'all take it super seriously. How does that work to the extent that you can reveal it? I mean, how do you authenticate it? How hard is that? And, you know, what does that process look like so where you can build trust with people who are sending and receiving product from you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, I'd say a combination of art and a science. When it comes to authentication, Anytime a new sneaker releases, there is a growing number of individuals, I guess you could say companies, mostly based in China that are creating replicas, right? Because, hey, there's a lot of people who don't want to pay four or $500 for a sneaker in the secondary market who are happy to spend 40 or 50 bucks to buy a knockoff. So what typically happens is there are a couple of specific parts of any given shoe model that give you the best indication of whether or not the shoe is real. So at a high level, for example, Jordan 1s. If you look at the back of a Jordan 1, it's supposed to have basically this hourglass shape. If, you know, it's kind of fanning out or tapering in, that's typically a good indication it's probably not real. If you pull the sole out on the inside of the shoe and you look at the stitching that goes around the shoe, and then there's also a specific hole that they'll bore into the bottom of the shoe, Oftentimes, those are indications of whether or not the shoe is real. So, you know, trained authenticators have a combination of kind of, let's call it like experience-based knowledge of, hey, anytime I see a Jordan 1, I'm looking at these four or five key areas. But then for specific models, there may be additional things on top of that. So, hey, for this particular colorway, look at the, like suede is a good example. Basically, how thick is the suede? How much can you sort of move it in one direction or another? Is it really stiff? Is it really soft? So basically, it's taking all of those factors and kind of looking point by point every time you see the sneaker to basically say, hey, is there any aspect of this sneaker that seems slightly off? And then beyond that, we also literally invest in buying the best face. So we constantly keep a pulse on who are the kind of most popular replica creators And when a shoe comes out, we go either buy one of the replicas or, you know, if we get one that comes in through a trade, oftentimes we'll just keep that one. Because we also want to be able to not only say, well, here's this shoe and here are the things that typically show whether it's real or not. In some cases, we want to literally pull a fake off of the shelf and be like, all right, here's the two or three best fakes of this shoe. Let's compare the one we have in hand to these known replicas. And oftentimes, you know, that's the way of really coming up with a definitive POV on, yes, we think this is real or no, it's not. Um, So you have scooped up fakes already. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we actually have, we recently built a wall in our authentication center, which is our fake wall. And it's just a wall full of replicas of the most commonly faked items and also more so like high ticket items. So like we're always thinking about what shoes are most likely to be replicas. Fast fact here. The most copied replica shoe out there is the all-white Air Force One. We don't see a lot of people trading those, but it's interesting, right? It's not always the most hype stuff. Sometimes it's just the most popular stuff. Panda Dunks, another great example. But then there's also a class of shoes where it's like, well, if we get this wrong, you know, the ticket cost for us to make it right is really high. So both of those cases, you know, we put shoes through an even higher degree of inspection. We have, you know, sometimes double blind, triple blind authentications where we'll have two different authenticators authenticate without knowing the other person's, you know, uh, opinion. There are digital services sometimes that we'll use to even get a third opinion if we think it's worthwhile. 
our biggest thing is, you know, we want to exhaust all possible means to be really confident in the decision we ultimately make. But then I think the other element of having a good, you know, authentication program, but getting to the real core thing that you said, which is trust, is what's your support experience like? If you have a 99.9% success rate in authentication, most people will say, that's a really good number. Like, I can trust that. But if you touch 10,000 shoes in a month at a 99.9% success rate, guess what? You know, 10 of those are going to be fakes. All right, now there's 10 people who have a, you know, a bad experience and a story they can go tell about like, oh, you know, such and such company sent me a fake. So, you know, I think we also went into it clear eyed and just said, no matter how good our process is, this is going to happen sometimes. And so how do we differentiate ourselves in terms of our customer support experience when that does happen? Let's be incredibly responsive. Let's have, you know, clear, you know, guidelines for how do I submit, you know, concerns about my shoe, you know, send in pictures. And if we feel like we, you know, made the wrong call, send the shoes back to us, we're going to cash you out or we're going to get you a brand new pair, you know, off of whatever marketplace. So. I think that's something we've really tried to lean into is let's have great authentication, but let's also create a great experience, you know, when we do get it wrong, because everybody's going to miss every once in a while. It's not just limited to when things go wrong, because, you know, when I was in there, I was like, first of all, the video with Pity Hardaway is dope. Like his collection, I think it really encapsulates who you're trying to get at, which we'll come back to in a second. But, you know, I looked at, you know, the Jackie Robinsons, the lowdown. I was like, you know, I'm not a sneaker head, so to speak, if I could use that term. But I was like, yo, I like Jackie Robinson. And if I was going to get a shoe to really stunt, you know what I mean? People may have different views on that. I like it. I got Jackie Robinson artwork now. Like, I would, I would floss in the Jackie Robinsons. And I looked at how many people had it. And I looked at how many people wanted it, I guess is how you describe it. And I just looked at it. They, they say, hey, they want it. And it was like eight times as many people. So can you talk about like what that looks like in terms of the community that you build around it and what it means to have it? And are people just sitting on the on the app to say, hey, I have this. Give me your best offer. Like, how does that process work? Yeah, I mean, I mean, short answer is there's a little bit of everything. And I think that's one of the things that is really rich about the trade block experience and just about trading in general, right? You know, when you're talking about a traditional buy-sell transaction, you know, there's not much optionality. There's the item, there's how much it costs, and are you willing to pay that or not, right? That's kind of the, the end of the interaction. With trade block, you have lots of different people with lots of different, you know, goals, motivations, etc. So you have the people who are like, look, I just have a bunch of heat that I've accumulated over the years. So I'm going to list it. There's certainly an aspect of this, which is I want to stunt and let you know how dope my collection is. But I'm also basically, you know, we use the term like farming, right? I'm not going to go out and create a bunch of offers. I'm not really hunting for anything in particular, but I'm going to list my inventory. And again, since it's all indexed, like you said, anybody who wants it, you know, come get at me, send me your best offer and I'll consider it. There's other people who are really, really active hunters who are like, man, I might not even have the strongest closet, but I'm going to go out there and I'm going to send out 20, 30, 40 trade offers a day until I can find someone who wants to do, you know, the trade that I want to do. Then um, the other aspect of trading is, you know, I think it allows for people with complementary preferences to find each other. So what what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not a big fan of Yeezys, but I'm a big Jordan head, right? You know, in theory, you could be the opposite, not really big on Jordans, but you really love Yeezys. That said, both of us being in sneaker culture, 
are likely to be entering raffles, both for Jordans and for Yeezys, because we know like, well, you know, if I can hit on a pair of these, they're going to be worth more in the secondary market than what I pay at retail. So even if I'm not that interested in the shoe itself, it just makes financial economic sense for me to try to acquire this asset. But then you and I can link up and facilitate a trade that both of us are really happy about, you know. And I think when you're able to take not just market value, but personal preference into account, you know, you actually create a, this is going to be kind of a highfalutin sort of way of describing this, but you create the most efficient marketplace, right? Because the market value is really just the average of what everybody out there is willing to pay. But if you then break that down, there's going to be some people who are willing to pay 20, 30, 40% above that. There's going to be some people who aren't willing to pay, you know, 20, 30, 40% below that. And that all comes down to personal preference. You know, if there's a pair of shoes that I got from my dad when I was a kid before he passed away, what I'm willing to offer to secure another pair of those is probably going to be significantly above what the market says they're worth. If I got lucky and hit on three or four different raffles for the same shoe, even if I love it, when I'm thinking about that third or fourth pair I have, I'm probably going to be willing to give it up below market value as long as I'm getting a shoe in return that I really like. So I think that's a big part of coming back to your earlier question about you know building for sellers versus building for collectors. I think that was a big part of our calculus. You know, I remember writing this kind of internal memo, man, it must have been just a couple months into the company, called Variably Valued Goods to try to really articulate what is it we're dealing with. And, you know, it was kind of exactly that. Hey, what is the sneaker worth to you? First thing we do is go look at a marketplace and pull up the price. Now, let's consider that there's some sentimental value or you've got three pairs or whatever other hundred criteria might be out there. How does that shift the value that you perceive as an individual? So we basically said, let's tap into that and let's give collectors, you know, a platform where they can certainly go acquire stuff or get rid of stuff but where the decision-making is you know, just as much about do I like this designer, this brand, this model, this story, et cetera, as it is about you know, is the quote-unquote price or value correct? Because to me, that's more quintessential about being a collector. It's not about what did I pay for this shoe. It's like, do I love it? And do I like it more than this shoe or that shoe, regardless of what the market says they should be valued at? Well, let's get into that because shoes our art. And I can think of two people in my life. One, when I was in college, my freshman year, this is when I first got introduced to it. His name is Danny. I remember it like it was yesterday. You go in his closet. He had way more shoes than I did. And I feel like he would fit into both of those buckets. You know, on the one hand, he was just like, yo, I'm flipping these, trading them back and forth. That there were some that he really wasn't going to part with, no matter what price kind of came into the mix. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I really felt that from him. And then and my nephew got in that game as well. And he, it was more of like a liquidity thing. But similarly, it was like how they described it to me, these young boys, is that like you're walking at school, somebody looks, they point, they point it toward, they point at yours, they end up swapping. So let's say that you got to start somewhere. Let's say I'm, I'm entering the collector status. Maybe I'm a fine art collector. I've been collecting other things. I have some shoes, but I just didn't know. I'm not in sneaker culture, but it's grown and it's touched me in a way. Um, or I've been doing it and I, it's time for me to like up my game and get on trade block. 
uh, you don't have to talk about the strategies, but what type of experience would you expect those people to have when they come on there? Is it, you know, they're going to grow their collection? Like for somebody like Penny Hardaway, he listed all of his shoes, but how easy or hard would it be to actually get one? The short answer to that part is yeah, you got got to send him an offer that he's into. The broader answer to your question, I think, goes back to what I said earlier, which is we we have all sorts of different people with all sorts of different motivations. So we have some people who are basically like, man, I've got a hundred plus pairs that I've built up. And yes, a lot of them are relatively valuable, but I'm trying to downsize. And so my strategy is going to be taking two or three pairs at a time, packaging them together and trying to get something more rare, something that has higher market value. You know, that's a more meaningful piece to me. So let me go from 60 pairs down to 20 pairs, but all those pairs are, you know, heat, they're my grails, they are the cream of the crop. You know, there's other people, I think one of the interesting things, even though we built for collectors, we have a lot of resellers on our platform. And, you know, when we ask them, hey, you're a reseller, why are you interested in trading? It's really two things. The first is arbitrage, right? So think of the other side of that equation that I just mentioned. If you're trying to put together a package deal to get a rare, more expensive shoe, you typically, you know, have to offer value above and beyond what's balanced. So another way that I kind of give the metaphor is like, all right, let's say LeBron's salary is 30 million a year. You've got three, you know, bench players who get about 10 million a year. Who is trading LeBron for three bench players, even if their salaries are the same? No, you got to offer you know, well and above what LeBron is worth if you're putting together a package deal that doesn't have any stars. So the same is true in trading. And so what resellers have realized is, you know, a lot of them are sitting on these grails that are more expensive, but also getting older and older. And it's really hard to sell that shoe, right? You know, sneakerheads kind of have the memory of goldfish where it's like what released in the past, you know, three months. And after that, like it kind of goes out of sight, out of mind because there's so much new stuff coming in. So if I have a pair that released two years ago, that also costs a thousand plus dollars. One, not a lot of people are hunting for it. Two, the people who do come across it, a lot of them are just going to be like, yeah, but I can't spend that much on that shoe. So what a lot of them are doing is taking those older, more expensive shoes, flipping them in trades for two or three pairs of newer, less expensive shoes. And one getting a premium on that. So you trade your thousand dollar shoe for $1,200, you know, worth of three shoes and all three of those shoes I can sell the next day, right? Cause they're all recent releases. They're more affordable, et cetera. So yeah, again, you see different people with different goals. You know, I'm also like, I hunt for used shoes. I'm really big on, I want to get my grails, but I want to get pairs that I, you know, I feel okay putting on my feet. If I get a thousand dollar pair of shoes that's dead stock, it's really hard for me to pull those out and actually wear them because I know I'm only going to wear them once or twice. But like driving a car off the lot, it's like, ah, do I want to sacrifice 30, 40 percent of the value of this shoe for this one wear? So I'm like, nope, let me go hunt for a used pair because one, I won't have to offer as much value to get it. And two, you know, as long as it's in decent condition, I'm getting it and it's going straight to the foot. But obviously, on the other side of that, you got the other person who's like, I have a bunch of used shoes. I want to turn them into stuff that's dead stock that, you know, either I want to put on ice or that I want to sell. And it's harder to sell used shoes. So again, you have people with different goals, but that ultimately are complementary to one another who are able to find one another and, you know, make trades happen where both parties feel like they want in a trade. I think that's the other beautiful thing about trading is 
you only hit accept if you're down for it and you feel like you're coming out, you know, on top. So we always say, hey, you know, you can take your L's every week on the sneakers app, but there's no L's on trade block. If you agree to the trade, explicitly both parties are excited about what's happening. That makes sense. And maybe for folks who don't know, like myself, who's still trying to figure out like why there's so much demand. If I remember correctly, when you go, when their shoe is released, no matter how hard you try, you wait in line, you still can probably only walk away with one. Maybe there are people and then online, like you go for a drop. And I tried it once. That's why I was like, this, I will leave it to the professionals. Like Bebo, you know, you click on it like at 12 o'clock on the dot and it's gone. So can you just talk a little bit more about how people are getting these shoes, why it's like that? Is it, has it changed in the last 10 years since I attempted to do this? Absolutely. So it, it used to be, you know, let's call it 2000s, even early 2010s. The pattern used to be one, basically all sneaker brands were selling the vast majority of their shoes via brick and mortar partners, right? So Nike had Nike.com, but the vast majority of the inventory on like, let's call it the, the Concord 11s, which was a really big release when I was in high school. Most of that inventory was going to Foot Locker or Champs or whatever other you know, sneaker stores. So if you wanted a pair, you had to go get in line before the release, early in the morning, sometimes the night before people would camp out. Those lines would get pretty spicy depending on where you were at, you know, like Oftentimes you wanted to have your ride right there outside of the door. Man, there was a famous a famous release in New York. It's these pigeon dunks designed by this guy Jeff Staple, who's a big, you know, big kind of designer and, and figure in the sneaker world. But he released these dunks. They had like a pigeon on them to represent New York. Can't remember how many pairs they were, but they were pretty limited. And literally there were Jack Boys like on every corner around this store. Like people were like, if you did not have a ride from the store and you were trying to walk, you were you were going to get in trouble. So that is kind of how it initially started, right? But then you had the emergence of platforms like StockX and Goat, which made it easier for people to like, one, have price transparency and know what should I pay for this shoe? Um, but two, you know, hey, I'm not gonna go wait in line and deal with that. Like I'm happy to just, wait and buy it in the secondary market. Another aspect of it, though, was Nike, Adidas, all the major brands, you know, as e-commerce became more and more of a thing, they were sort of like, hey, we're losing profit and margins by selling through a footlocker. We can now just sell directly to the consumer. So they started creating these drop platforms like the sneakers app or like Confirm, where essentially they say, okay, a certain amount of the inventory for this release is going to be available online. But everyone who's interested, you're all going to jump into this container together and enter a quote unquote raffle where there can only be so many winners. As people realized, hey, I can make a lot of money flipping these sneakers. You had more people move in who are like, I'm not interested in the shoe. I like I give a shit about the culture. I'm here to make a buck. Right. So now there's more demand that your traditional collector has to compete with. And a lot of those cats also started building and investing in things like bots that are able to you know, do what looks like a hundred unique entries into a raffle. And that's where you'll see, you know, some of these resellers who are, you know, flexing an Instagram and they got a hundred pairs of that, you know, recent release behind them when all the rest of us like took L's or maybe one person won. So that's the dynamic, you know, that is, has one, like made sneakers a bigger thing and pulled more people into the culture. But two, I think it's created a lot of frustration for for the people who, one, are either just passionate about the sneakers themselves and are less interested in making money, um, and two, have been around for longer. So that was a big part of what we were trying to address as well. You know, we were like, man, 
at the end of the day, the people who have created this culture are being crowded out by people who are moving in, you know, swooping in, try to create a, you know, to get a quick buck. So how do we create a way for those people who love the culture, who love sneakers to be able to get their hands on those shoes, you know, without having to decide like, you know, do I spend my light bill? Do I spend next month's rent check to go get that shoe? Our defense against the bots. I love it. I love it. Uh, this is, <laughs> I just remember it's, it's pain when you, especially because you wait, you know, like ahead of time it's coming and then to walk away with, with blanks is, is a tough way of going about it. Uh, before I get to uh, the, the question about where you are now and, and how things are going, you know, what are some of the rarest and most popular shoes? I'm just curious, you know, if I'm starting off and, you know, I like to go for the gusto, like, what would you, what would you look at down and be like, yo, that's, I'm surprised you got those on because those are, you know, top sellers. Yeah. Ooh, man, that's a great question. And I think that the answer really depends on who you ask because there's, there's so many right answers, but, you know, in today's market, the stuff that tends to perform the best as far as like, if you're measuring stick is, is demand, which typically is going to be pretty correlated with, you know, market value in the secondary market. It's typically these kind of major collaborations with, you know, entertainers or culture creators. Um, so probably the most successful, you know, releases of the past couple of years for Nike have been the Jordan collaborations, Jordan and Nike, actually, they've done a couple like dunks with Off-White, which is Virgil Abloh, rest in peace, um, his brand. So, you know, the Off-White, there's Jordan 1s, actually, they did 1s, they did 2s, they did 4s, they did 5s, the 4s haven't released. Anyways, there's a bunch of collaborations they did with Virgil Abloh and the Off-White brand, um, and then Travis Scott also all of the collaborations they did with him for the most part. Part of it is you have to understand this is demand planning by Nike though. So, you know, they really pioneered this idea of, hey, we can raise the profile of our brands, including stuff that's not hyped by creating these hype cycles artificially. So for, you know, a Travis Scott release, for example, Nike's going to run the numbers on how many of these do we think we could sell and then the amount they create is going to be typically a much smaller number. So it's like, we think we could sell a million. Let's make 250,000 pairs because part of the strategy is to make sure that not everybody can get a pair, at least up front. That's what creates the hype. That's what creates the excitement. That's what creates the brand halo, which may convince someone to say, well, dang, I couldn't get that pair. And now they cost 800. But there's this really, really similar pair, similar colorway, et cetera. Let me go ahead and get that one. A great example, Travis Scott did, uh, you know, some Jordan 1s, like reverse mochas, where basically it's a brown, black, and white Jordan 1, swooshes backwards. Like, you know, I'm not here to, to weigh in on design or not, but a lot of people really love those joints. Like, you know, you're, you're looking at $1,000 or something in the neighborhood to buy a pair. About a year later, Nike released the Mocha Jordan 1s, which was just a regular general release of a Jordan 1, but with a similar colorway of, you know, brown, white, a little bit of black. And that shoe goes for, man, I don't look lately, but probably $400, $500 in the secondary market. If the Travis Scott version did not exist, a regular general release brown Jordan 1 would never, ever have come anywhere close to those values in the secondary market, right? It's just that people look at that as, okay, here's the next best thing if I can't get the Travis Scott. And again, that's by design. So they'll release a small run of a really hot thing. 
And then typically a couple quarters later, they'll follow it up with, here's a generalized version that there's a ton more pairs of that we really want basically almost everybody who wants a pair to be able to buy. Man, that Ivy background comes in handy when keeping up with all these different moving pieces and supply and demand. <laughs> you teach uh, as well. Shout out, shout out to the Longhorns. So I did want to ask you though, what evidence of traction did you see? Because you could have launched this thing and nobody, you know, really could have bought into your idea and your vision. Why did they, in your opinion? Like, and what were some of the earliest evidences of traction that you saw? And was there ever a moment in time where you're like, you know what? I know this industry is $30 billion, but it's not for us. It's not working. Maybe we should do something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the honest answer, you know, to the second part of that question is, the vast majority of founders ask themselves that question all the time. Like even if, even after they do find some product market fit and are starting to scale, you know, it's a book called only the paranoid survive, which is, you know, a book that a lot of people building businesses read. And, and that's a big part of it. I think it's part of the challenge of being a founder is, you know, you have to be constantly thinking about, Hey, there's a world in which even if I'm on a rocket ship of growth, I'm very close to the ceiling. And if I hit that ceiling, what happens? What's next? You know, definitely a question that, you know, we asked a lot early on, especially because the thing we're trying to do is unique and, and kind of truly novel, right? A lot of companies are saying, here's a model that's already proven successful in XYZ, you know, arena. Let's see if we can make it successful over here. Sure, that's still a risk, but at least the core way that things work is the same, just applied to a new area. For us, it was like, this doesn't exist anywhere else. It's not like there's a trading platform for stamps or for, you know, Funko Pops or anything that we could go say, here's a successful model that we can, you know, model our own business off of. But I think one of the best decisions we made up front came from one of the first and kind of most salient insights, which was when we decided we were going to go do it, we started doing a bunch just kind of guerrilla user research. We would pull up to SneakerCon. You know, part of it was we were trying to get people to follow our pages and kind of build a beta group, you know, build an audience on social media. The other part of it was like, let's get to know these people. Let's understand what they like, what they don't like, and where the opportunity might be. And, you know, really quickly, I kind of developed a script where I'd start every conversation kind of asking about their inventory. And I'd ask three questions. How many shoes do you own? How many shoes do you wear? Like pick a month where you're like, yo, I'm stepping out a bunch this month. I got all of these events. Like this is going to be your freshest month ever. How many shoes are worn? Is it five? Is it 10? Is it 20? And then the last question was, how many shoes do you have listed for sale on StockX, on Goat, eBay, any other platform? And what we found was, you know, the answers to those three questions was almost like a powers of 10 exercise. So oftentimes it'd be like, I've got a hundred shoes in my collection. You know, my freshest month, I maybe will wear 10 pairs and I've got one pair listed for sale or oftentimes zero, like 60 something percent of the time, zero pairs listed for sale. So I think what we realized was, all right, these marketplaces have grown and become billion dollar businesses, but all of their supply is coming from people who are active resellers. For every one person who's an active reseller, there are five or 10 people who are just passionate collectors are still sitting on a ton of valuable inventory that's not providing any value to them today, right? You're not wearing it, but you're also not selling it. And when we would tell them about trade block, it became very clear that, you know, the potential to 
be able to field trade offers was a compelling enough incentive to get those people to list their shoes publicly. So we actually said, okay, let's not stress too much about trade volume. Let's make our North Star inventory. So we want you to sign up and then we want you to add as much of your collection as possible. And that was our goal. And, you know, that did a couple things for us. One, when you think about the potential for trading, it's directly tied to how much inventory is available. There's only 10 shoes out there, especially when you're trying to trade within your size. It's like, man, there's only going to be one or two shoes in my size. What are the chances that I like them? And what are the chances that the person who owns that shoe is willing to give it up for something that I have? It's pretty low. But if you can get to a million plus shoes in inventory, you know, now for any one shoe, I've got 100, 200 options for different people who I can trade with. The chances I'm going to find a good trade partner who's down to do the trade I want to do go up exponentially. So we sort of said, well, why would we be concerned with trade volume when we're still working on getting our inventory to a critical mass that's going to enable trades? And then the other thing we said was, hey, there's a world in which this trading thing doesn't work at all. But if we focus on inventory, we'll put ourselves in a good position to be able to pivot to you know a more traditional marketplace because, hey, nobody's really trading, but we've got a million shoes people have listed. Um, now that opportunity to shift the business model, you know, is a lot more right. Like the hardest thing to establish in a marketplace typically is a critical mass of supply. So I think that was a key insight and a key kind of strategic move we made up front. Well, so how did you do it? How did you do it? Because uh, so you were just like, hey, give us your shoes. You're not, you can't do anything with it. So we just have a warehouse of a million. Like, how did you do it? But don't tell us if it's a secret because it sounds like a good problem that you figured out that was also a hard problem. No, I mean, it, it was as simple as realizing that there was a lot of people who had no interest in turning their shoes into cash, but who had a lot of interest in turning their shoes into other shoes. So really, there, there wasn't much of a secret sauce other than let's evangelize this idea of every shoe you list opens you up to a realm of possibilities, right? So, you know, one small thing we did, for example, is we created a little landing page where you could look up a shoe. And we would immediately show you the demand for that shoe and existing offers. So now it was less like, hey, would you be interested in a platform where you could trade? It was more so like, hey, you're at a conference. You don't want to be pitched right now. What shoes are those? Those are, you know, a pair of Mocha Ones. What size? Size 10? Would you accept any of these trades? Here's 30 of them, right? So it's like, oh, snap. You're saying as soon as I list this shoe, suddenly I've got this massive universe of opportunities. And again, if you're a sneakerhead, it's also just fun to go through and look at each one and be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I don't really like that shoe, but that's a great deal. Like, oh, snap, I really want that pair. It's not as good of a deal, but I really love them. And then, you know, you're kind of hooked. So again, it was more so how do we pitch the service in a way that helps, you know, resonate on that front? And when we did it effectively, you know, we found that, hey, everybody who came and signed up on average, you know, was, was adding a meaningful amount of inventory. I won't give the specific number, but it was as simple as that. And, you know, I think the other aspect was let's not freak out or be overly concerned if the trade volume up front is light. Let's just focus on hitting milestones related to inventory. And if we can accomplish that goal, you know, it'll put us in a much better position when we're ready to really start focusing on generating trades. Um, and what I'll say is, you know, we were fortunate in that trade volume caught on and grew a lot faster than we were anticipating. We thought that part would actually be a much steeper hill to climb. It is a hard problem. There's still lots of opportunity to improve. 
but it's not like we exclusively focused on inventory and nothing was working on the trade side until we started ramping that up. By focusing on inventory, naturally trade volume started to pick up on its own, which was which is a dope thing to see for sure. Is there like a theory behind that? Do you think? I know we've been, you know, we've alluded to your academic interests and prowess and all that, but if you were, you know, counseling me on, hey, I'm looking to to go after, you know, a market, maybe this a marketplace element, because a lot of people are attempting to do the marketplace thing, and like you said, supply can be very difficult. Is there a theory that came out of that experience that you could apply in other realms, in other situations with other people? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that was fascinating to me, both because I'm a, you know, because I'm a nerd, um, but also because it was a unique kind of advantage that our marketplace had, you know, traditional marketplace is two sided. There's your supply side, there's your demand side. And the, the hardest thing to surmount is what's typically spoken of, like as the cold start problem, right? How do I get enough? demand and supply and the right balance such that it's self-sustaining and starts to grow on its own. Depending on your product, that can be very, very different. So, you know, there's Uber and Uber ultimately realized, hey, we have to get a certain number of drivers and a certain number of riders all in a very specific geographic, you know, location and geofence before that flywheel starts up on its own. For Dropbox, they were just sort of like, hey, we're going to create something that's valuable as a solo tool. You know, this is before kind of cloud storage was a popular thing. People were putting files on zip drives when they needed to go from computer to computer. It's like, no, what if you could just save it online, access it elsewhere? But the magic for Dropbox came in as soon as you invited someone else to collaborate in that folder. Um, that's when their flywheel started because then naturally you pull in more people from your team, et cetera. So, you know, there's different approaches based on the type of business you have. What was unique for us was when you're trading, both sides are playing the role of demand and supply simultaneously. So we never had to ask ourselves the question, you know, are we getting enough demand? Are we getting enough supply? Do we have a healthy balance? Again, it just came back to everybody who joins the platform, get them to list as much as possible. They're all going to be demand because they're going to be looking for, tra for trades. Let's ramp up the extent to which they provide supply as well. But yeah, we really had this, you know, this one-sided marketplace where we didn't have to worry about the balance there. It was just get stuff listed and make it easy for people to find one another. It's brilliant because you're right. Instead of people being like, let me rush to get these people and rush to get these people. Really, even though you're focusing on inventory, you're betting on that one customer coming in and being able to find what they want. Not a thousand customers, but the one when they show up, they have options. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it for marketplaces that are similar. And now I want to shift gears a little bit, Bimo, and talk about... Okay, you know, the other thing, if you're trying to build a marketplace, is whatever you can do to precede supply. That's the other thing I think we did well. How did you do it? How did you do it? So when we were going to you know sneaker conventions and stuff like that, we started to build a list of beta users where we said, look, we're going to go build this thing. Would you be down to be one of the first people to use it? And they're like, yeah, totally. And so we basically said, okay, on day one, when this launches, we want there to be a meaningful amount of inventory is where a lot of, you know, apps of any type, you know, marketplaces, but even social media apps fail is your very first users are coming into an empty vessel, right? 
So if I come because I'm like, I'm excited about the idea of trading, and there's only three shoes and five people, why would I invest any time creating a profile, listing my own stuff? It's like, ah, oh, there's no action here. I'll come back when there is action. So what we did was said, like, let's get a group of, it ended up being just about 500 beta users. And for a significant portion of them, we actually had them pre-submit inventory. Like, hey, send us an Excel spreadsheet, send us a Word doc, literally whatever fidelity, just send us the data. And we're going to build your profile for you ahead of time. So when you log into TradeBlock for the first time, all your shoes will already be listed. But that also means new people coming in will see a couple hundred users and a couple thousand pairs of shoes listed literally from the second we start. And, you know, I think you got to do things that don't scale. We had, uh, it's called Operation White Glove. When we found someone with a considerable size collection, and especially if that person was also influential in the culture, like a content creator, we would straight up be like, yo, Abraham, I know you just met us last week. How do you feel about us pulling up to your crib for a day? Because we're going to go sit in your sneaker closet and we'll take down all the data in the spreadsheet so you don't have to do any work, right? And day one, you'll sign up and all 200 shoes will be there. That obviously didn't scale, um, but it allowed us to come out of the gate really strong. And I think that was a huge part of you know what helped generate early momentum for us. So I'd say anyone starting a marketplace or any sort of business like that, how do you make sure that there is you know meaningful action for people to find on day one, um, even if it means doing a bunch of things that don't scale ahead of time? So how big of a problem is this? I know we talked about it being a $30 billion industry, but I'm more so that I'm still captured by the Penny Hardaway video. At first I was just like, you know, I get it, but you know, this is just an endorsement, but it, it put, I, I can see there being innumerable number of people who have just closets full of shoes, be they women, men, what have you. And I think about like the old school TV uh, show, MTV Cribs. And a lot of times you're going to end up in their closet. You're just going to see massive amounts of shoes in there. And you're right. They don't really wear them as much. But I'm just curious to know, like the white Operation White Glove, like did that give you a portal into how big of a problem this was for people that might not be reflected in the numbers? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. Like I think oftentimes when I talk about our business, you know, the, the core problems are access, accessibility and cost, right? It's hard to get the shoes that I want at retail because I'm competing with all these resellers and bots. If they go into the secondary market, you know, I'm now expected to pay exorbitant prices. So that's really the core problems we're trying to address. But I, I tend to actually talk about trade block more so in terms of opportunity. Like I think more than anything, what we've done is we've built a, you know, we've built a new road to the same destination. And so while most companies are like, hey, here's a pain point and here's a solution, what we're saying is, now, there's already a road to get there. That road just sucks and it's really expensive. Do you want to take this other road? So I think, you know, part of our, our challenge, which is a, a fun thing, is just kind of changing how people think about acquiring shoes, right? So it's like, hey, it's not just about are you interested in trading? It's actually more about like, what would you say if I told you you could get that $1,000 grail and only come out of pocket $50? So it's, it's really just educating people on, hey, there's a different way of doing this. And, you know, once people get that first trade done and the light bulb goes off, like we have really, really, again, I won't do the specifics, but like we have insanely strong customer retention numbers. So there's a big challenge getting you to understand how it works and kind of getting you to go through the whole process once. But once you've done it, 
we've just found that it's an incredibly sticky experience. And oftentimes, you know, as soon as that first trade's done, all of a sudden that person's like, yo, I, I added five shoes when I first started. Now I'm about to go add my other 50 shoes because now I get it and I can't help but think about how many more opportunities are going to be opened up for me when I list the rest of my collection. I love it. And the user interface does reflect that because I can think about selling any item. Yeah, I may have the money, but I don't have that item anymore. So the idea that I can have something tangible with me in addition to the cash, uh, the cash, I think is a very powerful, like visual psychological component to it. And I think y'all hit that that nail on the head. Uh, now I want to talk about just the people who have helped you along the way. I mean, uh, you started off, you know, with your co-founders and you all um, have done a great job of not just developing a good product, but evangelizing the company more broadly, you know, raising more money than a lot of people are able to raise, regardless of your background, you know, Google for startups and like all of these great and wonderful things. Who helped you get there? Who are the people along the way? Because somebody in your network is actually the reason we got connected. So could you just talk about the role that your personal relationship played in that for people who were thinking, you know, I don't know anybody, you know, I, I don't have the connections, you know, there are these things holding me back. Who was able to help you overcome those challenges? Fantastic question. I mean, my my initial answer is, you know, kind of just reflective of how I view the world, where my initial answer is like literally everybody I've ever interacted with in my life. I was having a conversation literally this morning where I, I talked to this guy and I was like, look, my approach to building relationships is like I'm a seed planter. What that means is, you know, you never know who might be you know, incredibly valuable to you and not just transaction from a business standpoint, like, you know, there's a world in which circumstances come together where you end up being one of my best friends 10 year, years from now. And we just, we wouldn't know, right? There's, there's no way of knowing will the past lead there. But I think if you approach the world where you're like, hey, anybody I interact with, you know, might be a future billionaire, might be my future best friend 10, 20 years down the line when our paths are like, you know, converge. I think it just, one, makes you treat people a lot better in general, um, but two, creates all these opportunities, which wouldn't have happened otherwise, and that sometimes are hard to track the provenance, right? Of like, well, how did this come to be? It's really, you know, an amalgamation of a hundred interactions I had over the years that eventually led me to this point. So it's kind of maybe the hippy-dippy answer, but I, you know, I think that that's, a, that's something I feel for real. Um, outside of that, to get more specific, you know, I definitely... Got to give love to my parents and my older siblings. You know, my parents, again, just creating a really fertile environment for, you know, our growth, our education. Um, I think being the youngest of five also was a huge thing for me because I had so many examples of older siblings, you know, who I could learn lessons from, who had my back and who, you know, I think were a really key part of why I have kind of a higher risk tolerance, like starting a company, you've got to be pretty open to taking risks. And I think I've always operated in that way because I'm like, hey, I've got so many amazing people I can fall back on. You know, if trade block goes to shit, if I put all of my personal funds into it and lose it all, you know, knock on wood, I can always go hang with my parents. I can always go stay with, you know, my older brothers or sister. Like that's, that's never been a question for me. So I think that's, you know, that's a huge part of it. And from a practical standpoint, you know, I think the time I spent at IBM after I graduated from UT, I spent four years there, you know, 
I worked in kind of the center of excellence for the global design program. Um, I spent a couple years working for IBM Watson, you know, creating content about IBM's AI, how it worked, what you can do with it. I spent six, seven months in IBM Research, which is kind of the R&D wing. You know, it's where they're building quantum computers, next generation, you know, AI chips, that sort of stuff. I think a lot of those relationships and interactions are a huge part of why I am like where I'm at today. You know, the lessons and learnings from people, not only like technical and practical, but also how people operate, like what does good leadership look like versus not, you know, how do you inspire people while also, you know, creating a healthy level of accountability, right? All of those things I picked up from a ton of people. And then, you know, I also definitely got to give a specific shout out to a guy, Phil Gilbert, who's a, who's the chairman of our board. I look at him as a, as a mentor and a, and a really good friend. Phil was the guy who basically ran that global design program at IBM. So when I was hired as an intern, I was, you know, probably 10 levels of separation down from him, but we worked in the same office and I was uh, put on the South by Southwest project um, with a small team and the design program was doing that on behalf of kind of the IBM corporate brand team. And so, you know, Phil was heavily involved because it was sort of something that his organization was doing for corporate. So we were able to build a relationship there, build a rapport. And, you know, three years in, I took a position working as his um there's a role called designer in residence. It's basically like a one-year almost apprenticeship where, you know, someone who's seen as a future leader shadows someone who's a current, you know, VP or exec, et cetera, learns the ropes, builds relationships, and, you know, after that year goes on to do whatever great things is the idea. So me and Phil got really close there. You know, he's a serial entrepreneur himself. He was only at IBM because IBM purchased his last startup. And it was, you know, during that year I spent with Phil when Darren, my co-founder, came to Austin, pitched me on TradeBlock. So when I was working with Phil, I was talking to him about this idea. I was like, you know, I'm not sure. Here's the things that I think are interesting. Here's the things that I think would be challenging. So he just kind of helped me develop it. Basically was one of the big people who was like, hey, opportunities like this don't come along often, you know. You're always going to be able to get a job at an IBM or any of these other big tech companies. So like, you know, you should take that risk. Yes, technically, this role is about grooming you for future leadership at IBM. But, you know, I don't think that's going to be as fulfilling for you as going off and, and running this journey. So I think he also gave me, you know, the confidence to, to take that leap of faith. Um, and he also, you know, he put his money where his mouth is. Um, I remember... Finally, when I decided I'm going to do this, created the first version of our pitch deck. He's a really good kind of presenter, storyteller, et cetera. So, you know, I was like, hey, I want to basically share this pitch deck with you. Let me know what you think. What should I sharpen? Is there stuff I should take out, et cetera? We went through it. He gave me his feedback. And then he was like, and by the way, send me your account information. I'm going to be else first investor. You know, you wrote $10,000 check. A couple of days later, he called me super excited. He's like, yo, you know, this guy Chip. I know you don't know him from, you know, from Adam, but he's also in for 10K. Trust me, he's a good dude. It's a guy who, you know, they had done a bunch of deals together in the past. So I'd say, you know, we also owe a lot to those two guys, both as people who leaned in and helped us, you know, see around corners and I think operate at a level of maturity beyond what was typically expected for a startup at our stage. Um, but two, who really, you know, activated their own networks, you know, when it was time to put some more money in the bank and, you know, are really 
key to helping us raise uh, some of those early funds. Um, that said, we also hit up literally every single person in our friends and family network. Also, I think structured things in a way that allowed us to take smaller checks. So we we set up a special purpose vehicle because um, the, the challenge with taking smaller checks, this is maybe a little in the weeds, but for people who are interested, there are federal regulations around how many total people can be on your cap table. Your cap table is basically here's everybody who owns a piece of the company. So the reason that a lot of companies won't take smaller checks is because if you're raising $10 million, you know, $5,000 doesn't move the needle a lot, but now that person takes up one of your slots. And also there's a lot of things, you know, when you're trying to make a big decision for the company, like, hey, do we sell? Do we want to bring in on, bring in this investor? Oftentimes you have to get shareholders to sign off on those things. So now it's like, man, I got to chase down 50 people who all put in really small, you know, not that meaningful checks in order to do these things we need to do. It can just become really, really, you know, onerous. So again, shout out to Phil and Chip. They sort of put us on game around the idea of creating a special purpose vehicle, you know, which has a much higher threshold of how many people can invest. But it allowed us to take a lot of small investors, put them all on a single entity, and then that entity is a single line on our cap table. And so that, again, helped us raise from a lot of places that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to raise from, um, but also helped us follow through on something we were really passionate about, which is, man, how do we get as many black and brown people in on the early, early rounds? Because that's where the really meaningful wealth is generated, right? So even if you only got $1,000, hey, if we can get you in on our pre-seed round where, you know, we're only valuing ourselves at a million or two million, the returns for you can be really, really meaningful. Um, down the line. I mean, we're our last round we raised at a $55 million valuation. So, you know, those cats that we grew up with or were friends of a friend who were like, I really want to get in, but I don't have a lot of money to put in. We're like, cool, we've got an avenue for you. Just a couple more questions. You're in Austin, Texas. Uh, you moved there. You, I guess, are an honorary Texan, so to speak, since you were in third grade. So uh, for the most part, so What's it like building in Austin and that ecosystem? Because it's on all the lists. The Californians have come in, probably people from elsewhere. They're propping it up. I was there recently. You know, Afrotech is there a, a lot of the time. There, you know, millions of people in that city. Uh, it's known to be a city for builders. The traffic is horrible downtown, but it's a cool place to like get a mix of tech and uh, like green space and you know just different elements in that way. Uh, what's it like building in Austin? Uh, just talk to us about that. And if you could, if you had to leave, where would you go? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as your description of Austin and, and what resonates with me. Um, a lot of innovators, um, both in terms of kind of big five tech. So, you know, Meta has got a presence out here. Amazon's got a presence out here. Apple's got a presence out here. So you can meet a lot of people who are you know, working in those bigger successful companies, but also a ton of startup energy, a ton of entrepreneurs. Um, so I think there's a nice, healthy mix of, you know, kind of legacy companies and up and comers that I think is, is kind of unique. You know, I'm a huge advocate of working for a big established company before starting your own thing. There's just so much I learned both like positive, but also negative patterns that color how I approach my work today. I was like, man, I saw this play out at IBM a dozen times and every single time it went poorly. So let me make sure when I build my own thing, I'm going to be intentional about doing that in a different way. 
but also a ton of stuff that I learned that I was like, oh, that really works well. And I never would have known had I not had this experience. So that's badass. And I'm, I'm a big outdoors guy, you know, when I need to get away from everything, I'm like, let me jump on my bike. Let me go for a hike. Let me kind of get out away from other people and kind of just be able to sit still with my thoughts in nature. So that's a huge part of Austin as well. <laughs> that I grew up in Houston. I got a lot of love for Houston, but there's not many opportunities to do that in Houston. You got to drive an hour or two outside of the city if you really want, you know, some some true nice wilderness hikes and those sorts of things. If I had to go somewhere else, that's a great question. Somewhere that's not so hot would probably be the first part of my answer. You know, I think the playing field has changed a lot. Five or 10 years ago, I think a much bigger part of my calculus would have been sort of where is the concentrated energy uh, around entrepreneurship. But I think just as everything has become more and more digital and then, you know, supercharged by the pandemic, just kind of the emergence of these hybrid work models and people working remote all over the place. I think it matters a little bit less, you know, how co-located you are with other people. So I love Denver. I have a brother who lives in Denver. Amazing, amazing outdoors life. Uh, actually pretty similar culturally to Austin and kind of has its own little growing um, tech ecosystem. This is a a random one but um kind of under the radar like salt lake city is a really dope place that's got a ton of you know healthy tech but even kind of non-tech startup energy got a buddy who's one of our angel investors who lives out there um was just spending some time with him out there and it's yeah it's beautiful you know you're out in the mountains but it's relatively mild again maybe not the most diverse state in the world <laughs> but not nah, i'd have to give it some thought man i mean i think I think maybe I'd be a digital nomad, you know, just bounce around between different cities, you know, and enjoy the different experiences. That's becoming more common, although it sounds like you have some visions of the Rockies, which would be cool. It'd be good, good change of scenery for you. Uh, so before we let you go, just remind us again, you've, you've said this in, in, in many ways, but just, you know, for that recency or latency effect, you know, what is the most valuable thing that you feel like Trade Block does for customers, users, collectors? people who are a part of this journey with you first would be access right it is you know creating this alternate route of access to be able to acquire the sneakers you you love the ones you're most passionate about and do it in a way that's you know one sustainable you know where we got kind of a one in one out philosophy uh, but affordable and again that's a huge part of it you know let's be honest sneaker culture is largely rooted in black and brown culture like all of this stuff exists because a lot of young black and brown people who tend to be less wealthy you know and lower on socioeconomic status were really passionate about a thing and turned it into a massive industry and business phenomenon so you know really trying to make sure that those people don't get left behind as the economic opportunity around this industry grows and then i'd say like a more authentic way of engaging with you know the thing that you're passionate about again you know no knock on a traditional marketplace but they're tools right they, they exist to facilitate a transaction and when you're in between transactions you have no reason to be you know on a marketplace like nobody's spending time on amazon you know when they're bored it's like i can go in there because there's something i want and once i buy it or i don't buy it i'm gone so our thing was let's create a social marketplace where certainly you have this opportunity to acquire goods and to engage in transactional behavior but there's a hundred reasons why you might be on trade block even when you're not explicitly hunting for a specific item you know interacting with other passionate collectors people you build relationships with seeing what trades other people are doing 
just kind of exploring the catalog, you know, discovering sneakers you weren't aware of, rediscovering sneakers you used to love. That's a huge part of our of our thesis and our strategy is, you know, be the best at trading, solve the hard problem, but also create a platform and a destination that collectors want to spend time in, you know, even when they're not explicitly trying to acquire something new. This has been great. And thank you for going into detail on sneaker culture, collector culture, and the finer things as, as it relates to sneakers. How can we stay in touch with you? You know, like if I've been listening to you and I kind of vibe with it, uh, or I really, really, really want to like get at you or, or figure out a way where we can get time on your calendar or something like that. What is the best way to do it? I know your calendar is packed, but if maybe I've been a guest on, you know, Diverse Tech Founders Media or I'm listening to this and, you know, I'm a loyal listener and I'm like, yo, I really want to connect with BMO. What is the best way to do that? And also the best way to go from zero to 60 on trade block? Best way to connect with me today is probably LinkedIn. So, you know, just search my full name on LinkedIn. You can search probably the first three letters of my first name. You'll probably find me. It's not a lot of BMO Gogamos out there. Um, but yeah, I, I have a Twitter. I have an Instagram. But over the past year or so, I've, my usage has dropped to basically zero. So hit me on LinkedIn. If you want to have a conversation, shoot me a, a connection request, shoot me a DM. And again, I'm, I'm you know, really passionate about carving out time in my schedule to, you know, chat with people who are looking for guidance, you know, especially if you're a young, you know, first time founder or aspiring first time founder, particularly a person of color, you know, hit my line and anything I could do to help. You can also find me on Trade Block. My handle is Beams, B-E-E-M-S. So if you're size 13, 14, you're looking to get some deals done. That's how you can find me on Trade Block. And then, man, the best way to go from zero to 60 on Trade Block, quite frankly, sign up, list your inventory. Like that's, that's really the best way to do it. Get on there. List all the shoes you have and then start poking around at, you know, what offers exist and also create some. You have the ability to create public offers that literally everybody can see. So one of the best ways to just start getting some negotiations going is to put five or 10 offers out there to the community as a whole. And oftentimes you'll see some people who are like, hey, I saw that offer you posted. I'm down to do something similar, but slightly different. You know, what do you think of this? Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're always sharing, you know, just kind of tips and tricks for getting trades done. I love it. Well, again, appreciate your time here. This was uh, very enlightening for, you know, people who have been in the game for a minute and also newbies who are really trying to figure out what the hysteria is all about in, in, in some situations. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, but before we go, we just want to let you have the last word. And, uh, you know, close us out here. First of all, thank you for having me. Second of all, thank you for everything you're doing. Like, you know, I think your podcast is really dope. And I think one of the most important things, you know, when we're thinking about how do we increase equity, equity inclusion, et cetera, is telling stories. Like people need to see people that not only look like them, but sound like them, dress like them, move like them, you know, represented in these areas. So that's something we're really passionate about, you know. I'm very big on, hey, if I'm going into an investor meeting, you're not going to see me in a suit and tie. You're going to see me in my streetwear and my J's because we need to we need to reset those expectations that someone wearing streetwear is somehow less than the person who walks in in a, in a suit. So that is a huge thing for me. And then, you know, I think the last thing I'd say is just kind of my core first principles on life, man. This is completely unrelated to business, but, you know, I'm very passionate about three things. One critical thinking. I think it's incredibly important that we as human beings are equipped with the ability to, you know, go seek out truth for ourselves, separate fact from fiction, 
especially in today's world where, you know, we get all our information basically from social media um, and there's so much, much disinformation out there. It's incredibly important that we, you know, develop kind of strong muscles around critical thinking. Two, introspection. I think that's been one of the most important things in my life is the ability to sit with my own thoughts, with my own feelings and unpack them, you know, to ask myself questions like, hey, why do you like those shoes? Why do you like that type of music? Why are you doing the things you're doing? You know, why do you not like the things that you don't like? Really learning to understand yourself, I think, is maybe the most powerful thing anybody can do, you know, both for their own mental health, but also just for the quality of their life. And then the last is empathy. You know, I think in today's world, that's increasingly polarized and where, you know, social media allows us to stay in these really tight silos where we're surrounded by people who are just like us. I think it's more important than ever for us to develop a strong empathy muscle where you know we're able to put ourselves in the shoes of someone totally different. And even if you're not going to agree with everything they think or how they move, you at least are able to try and understand why they are the way they are, why they do the things they do. So, you know, my philosophy in life, and this is what I'm, you know, gonna try to try to drive into my little man who's, you know, almost seven months old now, just became a parent. It's like, hey, if you've got great critical thinking skills, if you're able to be introspective and understand yourself. And if you've got, you know, strong empathy where you're able to understand others and, and really feel for what they're going through, that makes for great human beings and hopefully a better society. So that's what I'll leave y'all with. I love it. And thank you for that. Until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.